Judges. <laughs> Judges has all been getting us ready for these last five chapters. Um, these last five chapters, chapter 17 to 21, is the conclusion of the book. There are no more judges. There, we finished all 12 of the judges that we've covered. There are no more judges to cover. This is the conclusion of the book, and it brings everything to a culmination, both in the decline, but in the application of this. And so these last four messages, two on 17 and 18, two on 19 to 21, these last four messages are going to be full of applications for us, because that's what's happening in the book. And what we're going to see here in uh, our first look at chapter 17 and 18 is that everything old in Judges is new again. All the stuff that we see in the book of Judges, it's going on for us right under our noses, here and now. Um, to, to orient you to how this book concludes, um, there was an introduction, and there are the 12 Judges, and then we have these two conclusions at the end. Um, I, I've got an article by John MacArthur on society in general and, and, and looking at, at how everybody in our society now does what is right in their own eyes. Um, there is a very pointed one by Lawson Younger on our, our attempt to manipulate God, <laughs> to get him to bless us and cooperate with us. That, that's a lot of what's going on in the passage we're going to look at today. And then a general application for chapter 17 and 18. I've got more. Uh, there's a summary of this, in, this entire concluding section, chapter 17 through 21, very readable by Danny Hayes. Uh, and I would really encourage you, it really orients you to how, how the book ends. Um, and then there's a really thorough application developing the, the, the applicational points that come out in these last few chapters uh, by Bob Chisholm. All those are printed out there at the Connection Center. You can get them online. Um, because we're ending, we're, we're kind of, we've moved through a lot of stuff in this book and we're, we're, we're landing the plane. Um, I, I want to set this up for you a little bit more. Um, setting up historically, conservative biblical datings, the Exodus, uh, regardless of what you may have seen in Hollywood movies, the Exodus, when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, uh, took place in 1446 BC, okay? Um, they came out, uh, they explored the land, they wandered for uh, 40 years in the land, and, and they began to conquer the land, and it took them a while to do that. Uh, they began that in 1375. Um, the United Kingdom, when Saul, David, and Solomon are going to rule, that starts in 1050. The book of Judges is in between when they came out of the land and the kings start to rule. It's about a 325-year period between 1375 B.C. and 1050 B.C. when Saul takes the throne. The period of Judges fits in there. They've come out of Egypt. They've settled into the land, um, but they're living in this period where there's a lot of intermingling and the world is having too much impact on them. Um, it basically looks like this in the book of Judges. There, there are 12 judges that are presented. Six of them we call major judges. They're the ones where there's a little bit more of a story about them. Othniel, Ehud, Barak and Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. Those six guys are judges. We get big stories about them. In order to make the book uh, include all the tribes of Israel um, with a symbolic number of 12, there are these, seven, uh, these six other judges that get us to the number of 12. Okay, So this period is, is basically saying during this period of time, the entire nation of Israel was looking like this. <laughs> the entire nation of Israel was... Um, sinning, falling into idolatry, 
God was sending judgment on them. They would cry out to him. God would send a deliverer, one of these judges. There would be a time of peace, and then the cycle would start over and over again during these 325 years, just cycle after cycle after cycle. I'm going to pause now that we've made it through all of our cycles and make an application about leadership and spiritual impact. (laughs) Throughout the book of Judges, God is using people of declining and questionable character. Um, Each one of these judges gets worse. God is using them, though, to accomplish his purpose, but the reality is they leave no lasting spiritual impact. And that's how the book is going to end. The book doesn't necessarily end chronologically, but it ends thematically by saying, after all this has taken place, and God has sent judge after judge after judge to deliver, the entire nation is corrupt. And by the way, I would say it's true today. God is having to use... um, more and more people of questionable character to accomplish his purpose, but the spiritual impact is waning again and again and again. Um, Al Ross puts it this way. We're not surprised that throughout, the church, throughout church history and within the church today, there's a real attempt by people to reconfigure Christianity to fit their own agenda, and it ends up being a man-made religion. It's not going to save anybody and it's going to let you down because it's not built upon the truth and it's not administered by faithful people. I think that's true of the church. It's true of what we saw in Judges and what we are seeing in Judges. What was old is now new again. This is happening again. People are reforming Christianity and saying, well, we're going we're gonna, to, instead of say we are made in God's image and we'll live for his glory, we're going to remake God in our image and make him serve us. We're remaking religion and trying to redefine Christianity. It's not built on truth. It's built on our own personal desires. Dr. Ross goes on to say this. The test of the worshiper and the minister and the people is very simple. Are you faithful to God's word or aren't you? We have to know enough from the word of God to be able to discern truth and error. Um, It's not about um, figuring out how God can cooperate with your agenda and bless your life so that you can look like everybody else in the world. Um, by the way, this is the reason that I teach the way I teach. <laughs> the, way that I, the reason that I teach God's Word and try to get you to see how the whole book of, of Judges fits together and how we go into depth, and, and I stick within the passage, because um, I want you to be able to read God's Word on your own. I don't know how much longer we're going to be able to do this. <laughs> I don't know how much longer we're going to be able to be free. But I want you to to have the skills to be able to read God's Word and not just show up for a pep talk, not just show up to be encouraged because God wants to bless you this week, but to teach God's Word in a way that that frames it so that you can understand it. And so here's what's going on in the book of Judges. I want to highlight a couple of things. Um, In the middle of the book, we've got the 12 Judges that we've talked about. But the book begins with, with a double introduction, And it's going to end with a double conclusion. There's two parts to the introduction, two parts to the conclusion. There's a shift that that takes place, though. In In the beginning of the book, all of the threats to the nation of Israel, to God's people, they're external. It's the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Philistines. Um, They are oppressing them, and it's the gods of those. uh, It's Baal and Molech and Ashtaroth. It's all external. 
by the time you get to the end of the book, because God has delivered them, but there's been no spiritual impact, here's what happens at the end of the book. It's all internal. It's shifted from the oppressors who are uh, pagans to the corruption within the nation itself. And it's not that they are going to worship the Baals. They're bringing the idol worship into the worship of God himself. Um, the beginning of the section starts with war and idolatry. The, the Israelites' failure um, to drive out the Canaanites. And because they failed in the war to drive out the Canaanites, idolatry is going to be rampant within the nation. When you get to the end of the book, it reverses. And our first conclusion, chapter 17 and 18, is going to be all about idolatry. <laughs> and then it's going to end with a civil war. So the book starts with war, then idolatry, 12 judges, then idolatry, then war. The big shift here is the threats at the beginning were all external, all the other political powers, all the other religions. But all of that has crept completely into the people of God so that at the end, the war is a civil war. And the, the idolatry is an idolatrous worship using the Levites and evoking the name of Yahweh. Uh, Lawson Younger says this, whereas at the beginning of the period of the judges, the Israelites had difficulties with the foreign gods of the people of the land, the Israelites are presented now in the first conclusion, this is 17 and 18, as perfectly capable of manufacturing their own idols. They're creating God to fit their lifestyles. There is this double conclusion, <laughs> war and idolatry. It's political failure and theological failure. Now, God responds to that throughout the whole book by being faithful to deliver his people, but also giving them the consequences of what they deserve. So there's judgment and God's faithfulness. Then we get to this double conclusion at the end. We're going to move through it, um, beginning in chapter 17 this week, chapter 18 next week, and then we'll spend two weeks in 19 to 21. The first part of the conclusion is, is all about the idolatry in the land, and the second part of the conclusion is all about the war in the land. Um, an interesting transition also takes place. Um, here in chapter 17, and at the beginning of the second conclusion in chapter 19, we read about a young Levite in chapter 17.1. In 19.1, the beginning of the second conclusion, now a Levite, okay? Let me highlight what that means. They're the spiritual leaders, this is the priestly tribe. The corruption is not just random. In the, the corruption has now made it internal so that the spiritual leaders are the center of the corruption stories. The spiritual leaders are utterly corrupt. It's unbelievable what these spiritual leaders do. There's another thing that happens, and that is um, it's centered in Bethlehem. 17.1, the Levite is from Bethlehem. In 19.1, this other Levite is from Bethlehem. That actually sets us up for something in the future. By the way, Levites shouldn't live in Bethlehem. They had cities. They were not given a tribal allotment. I mean, Manasseh, Dan, Ephraim, they all had a tribal allotment. Not the priestly tribe. They had cities they were supposed to live in scattered throughout the land in designated cities, and Bethlehem's not one of them. What are the Levites doing living in Bethlehem? We've got two Levites, spiritual leaders, living in the wrong towns and doing all the wrong things, as we'll see. But why Bethlehem? The book of Judges starts this way. 
In the days when the judges ruled, a family in Bethlehem. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a man in Bethlehem during that time period in the very city where the ultimate stories of religious corruption take place, there was a family, Boaz and Ruth, who were living faithful to the covenant. The Levites really look to the past and the present. The, the corruption is spiritual at this point. The Bethlehem emphasis gives us really <laughs> hope. It gives us the hope that in the middle of the days when the judges are ruling, in the middle of the 21st century, when the world is falling apart, and all of that corruption is not just external, it's within the church itself. There's hope. Because there was a family in Bethlehem during the time when the judges ruled who were faithful to God. So when we finish this horrible conclusion to the book, we're going to go into Ruth and we're going to see what it means to live faithfully to God in the middle of all these times. Danny Hayes says this, Judges illustrates for us quite graphically the tragic consequences of sin. Once people abandon worshiping God, they, they usually quickly embrace the corrupt morals of their surrounding culture and spiral down morally and theologically until they hit the bottom with a big splash. The most amazing thing about the book of Judges is that the Bible doesn't end here. You would think there would be judges. He goes on to say there'd be judgment. He goes on to say that. That is after reading Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Joshua, one is surprised that the terrible sin of Israel in Judges doesn't simply bring an end to the story. God should destroy them, and that's that. We get a good picture of how deep God's grace and mercy really are as we read on and realize that in spite of their terrible sin, God will send them real deliverers after the judges, Samuel, David, and ultimately Christ. I mean, I feel the same way as I look at our world today, and I go, why is it God judging? <laughs> How much longer is he going to put up with what's going on in our world? People's rejection of him. And within the church, people reframing the church and God to just support their view of, um, let me live a successful life. How long is God going to put up with this? Um, I'm going to make another application <laughs> I think our greatest threats as the church of Jesus Christ is not the external threat of losing our religious freedom or being shut down because of COVID. I think the greatest threat to the thriving of the church of Jesus Christ is the church itself. It's because we are reframing God to support our desire to live like the rest of the world. God's amazingly patient, and he will send deliverers. Um, he is gracious, but in the middle of his grace, there's judgment. And when the, the spiritual leaders in the church are not being spiritual leaders in the church, um, there'll be no lasting spiritual impact. And as I look at what I, I see happening in the church at large, um, I'm fearful for the future of the church, not God not being faithful, I just wonder how long it's going to last. This passage is, is all about all that stuff that I'm describing that took place in the book of Judges. It's around us, in our world, and in our churches. And if we're not faithful, we're going to fade off. In this first conclusion, chapter 17 and 18, it's almost as if 
it's describing Israel going out of their way to violate everything in Deuteronomy 12. (laughs) Deuteronomy 12 says, worshiping on the hills is prohibited. If you find an altar on the hills, destroy it. In Judges 17 and 18, they're building them. Deuteronomy 12 says, if you find an idol, cut it down. They're manufacturing them. Um, Deuteronomy 12 says that you should worship at a centralized place, not just in your own personal shrines. That's ignored in Judges 17 and 18. You're supposed to support the Levites because they're working at the central shrine. They're working at the tabernacle or later on the temple. But what we're going to see is people are hiring Levites to, to serve in their private shrines. Specifically, Deuteronomy 12 says, do not do what is right in your own eyes. Three times in Judges 17 and 18, 19, and 19 to 21, it's going to say they were doing what was right in their own eyes. Um, God's clear instructions are being completely violated. And you, and you look at it and, and you go, it says it really clearly. Why are they doing it? Well, what about the things in our lives that the Bible is really clear about? The things in our society, in our culture, but even within the church that people are, are tolerating and saying, well, that's okay. And, and they'll remake God to be gracious enough to deal with it. Uh, one other part of this introduction, let me just set this up. All these events that are taking place for today take place in what we now call the West Bank. Um, it's the West Bank of the Jordan River. All these events are going to take place there. Um, and then we're going to see next week that Dan is going to move way up to the north. Um, it, it's this place here um, called, we, we call it the West Bank. The, the other, the coastal area is where the Philistines live. That's the Gaza Strip. But to locate it uh, geographically. So, so I've set this up structurally. I've set this up theologically. I've set this up uh, applicationally. I've set it up geographically. But let me see if I can set it up memorably. If you want to understand what's going on in the book of Judges, here's how you can remember it. His name is Frank Sinatra. He's real famous. The Israelites keep taking the blows one after another after another. The Philistines, the Amorites, the Amalekites, the Canaanites. They take blow after blow after blow, and they still pop their head up and say, but we're going to do it our way. And we do the same thing. Repeatedly throughout this last five chapters, we're going to read, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. In those days Israel had no king. Who's your king? Are you the king? Is money the king? Is your boss the king? Is success the king? Who's your king? And are you willing to reject the autonomy and the lack of authority in our age to say, I will submit. I won't do it my way. I will do it his way. Our greatest need is not our own personal version of truth, not your version of, oh, this is my truth. 
I'm living out my truth. This is how I see it. By the way, I'll run down this rabbit trail. If you're in a Bible study, a fellowship Bible church Bible study, and somebody asks this question, what does this mean to you? Bad question. I don't care what it means to you. What does it mean, and how should you live in light of it? Where we've gotten ourselves into the problem we've gotten ourselves into is, well, what this means to me is that sin wasn't homosexuality. That sin was inhospitality. That's what it means to me. It was being inhospitable. Stop. (laughs) It's not what it means. What does it mean, and how should you live? Now, how it applies to me, that's a great question. Our greatest need is not our own personal version of truth. You can live your truth. Our, own, our greatest need is a king, and it's not even a deliverer like a Samson or a Gideon. It's not a king like Saul or David. It's a king whose name is Jesus. That's our greatest need. And by the way, our king named Jesus, he told us to love the people around us who don't interpret the Bible the right way. He still told us to love them. He didn't tell us to judge them or be harsh to them. He said, stand on the truth and love everybody around you. Let's get into this passage. Micah's going to make a new religious shrine. This guy named Micah, not the Micah who writes one of the prophetic books later, he's going to make a religious shrine for himself. Um, The shrine should have been where the tabernacle was. It was at Shiloh at this point. The shrine, you should go to the tabernacle to worship later at the temple. He's going to make a personal shrine rejecting all of God's instruction and authority. And what it leads to is this chaotic life that literally is too baffling for me to understand. I keep asking myself questions as I read this passage. I'm going to show you some of them. I read the passage and I keep asking, that's, I have to ask a question, and then I go, this is a stupid question. Let's read the passage. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I had that silver with me. I took it. Okay, this is a weird start. If anybody thinks it's not, then read again. Um, This guy has stolen money from his mother, but because she uttered a curse on the person who stole it, he's now confessing. By the way, the 1,100 shekels of silver is exactly the same amount of money that is offered Delilah in the previous chapter. It's an interesting connection there. But now he's going to confess. Well, should he have confessed because there's a curse? No, no, he shouldn't have stolen it from the first place. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. Well, that's really confusing to me. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I'll give it back to you. Um, okay, he gives the money back, and she says, okay, you're blessed. And she says, and now I want to use some of the money. I'm going to give it to the Lord. That's really good to make an image overlaid with silver. Wait a minute. If you know even the basics of the Ten Commandments, you're not supposed to make any images of the Lord. Um, This passage, I mean, it's just getting so chaotic and confusing. It gets better. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol, and it was put in Micah's house. Okay, first of all, let me go back. 
there's 1,100 shekels of silver. She said, I'm going to give that to the Lord. And what she does is she takes 200 shekels of silver. Oh, she, should she have given the whole 1,100 shekels of silver to make the image to the... No, wait a minute. No, that's not the solution to this. She should have given all the money to make the idol. No. I mean, this is shades of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, isn't it? They make the idol with part of the money. Apparently, they kept the other money because God is gracious. He would understand, right? And where do they put it? They put it in Micah's house. Um, well, they shouldn't put an idol in Micah's house. That's a wrong place. to. They shouldn't have an idol. Now, this Micah, he had a shrine. Not only did he have a new idol that his mom funded, but he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. Um, <laughs> there's a whole deal. The, the Levites are supposed to be the priests, and now he's installing his sons as the priests. Let me pause here for a second and talk about, you know, everything that glitters isn't gold. <laughs> Just because people say the right words, because she's saying blessings, cursings. She's going to dedicate the money to the Lord. Just because it looks pretty on the outside doesn't mean it's the reality. You can say all the right words, sound like you have it all together, and your heart and life still fall far short of God's will and purposes for your life. <laughs> you can say all those stuff. You can, you can evoke the name of the Lord. You can have a shrine at your house. You know, you can, you can have places, you know, oh, you've got your little place where you have your quiet time and you've got your Bible over there. Every now and then you dust it off. You've got your, your household things that remind you you're a Christian. You can talk about the Lord. You can come to church. But the reality is not the externals. It's not the stuff that glitters, the stuff you put on the outside. It's what's really going on in your heart. Um, and so Micah's going to buy a new priest here in this section. Um, Micah has installed his sons as the priest. Now he's going to buy a new priest. You can be religious without being spiritual. And, and that is one of the things I fear the most in the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century, is that there's a lot of people who are religious who are not spiritual. Here's the passage. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he shouldn't have been living there, it's not one of the Levitical towns, he'd been living with the clans of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. By the way, do you see how it emphasizes he's a Levite from Bethlehem? There's something going on there. He shouldn't have been in Bethlehem, but it's also setting up in this Bethlehem place. That's where Ruth is going to take place. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest. I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. I'll pay for your room and board and a small salary. So then again, I asked, okay, his son shouldn't have been the priest. So should he have hired the Levite? To... No, he should not hire a Levite to be a priest. The Levite should be a priest at the temple of God, not in his personal shrine. But the Levite agreed to live with him. And the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite and the young man became his priest and lived in his house and Micah said, oh my word, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. Now that I've arranged it and I've, I've got some religious stuff around me, I've got an idol in my house, I've got a shrine in my house, and now I even got a, a preacher on the payroll. Because of that, 
yeah, God will bless me. <laughs> I'm going to set it all up, and then when it's all done, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at, look at it and just go, yeah, God should be pretty happy with me because I got all the religious stuff glittering. I got all the religious accoutrements around me. Let me make an application here. Religion versus reality. You can have all the right words and pieces of religion and have none of the reality. Don't judge your own spiritual condition by the externals. Examine the condition of your heart. It's not about how many Bibles you own. It's not about how often you come to church. It's not about how well you know religious people, how many Christian podcasts you listen to. The question is, is your heart fully dedicated to the Lord? When God's people are ignorant of his instruction and rebel against his authority, they don't have a king, and they do what is right in their own eyes, and they put themselves in the center of the world, they're often indistinguishable from the world around them. It's a problem with the church today. It's not the external threats, folks. The book of Judges lands with the internal stuff going on, with the spiritual leaders in the community, guys like me, the spiritual communities themselves who have now personalized God to fit their culture and then backed up and said, oh, I've got it all right. Now God will bless me. So much of the church today is indistinguishable from the world. They're just manipulating everything to figure out how to get God to bless them. So I've got a couple of next steps here as we land this. Rejecting God's plan and authority creates chaos, and it makes you ask questions that the answers are just crazy to. When God is no longer on the throne, when God's no longer at the center of your life, then you're asking, should I do this or should I do this? Neither one of them are probably good answers. And folks, it's very easy to deceive yourself into thinking that God is on your side when he's really not. You may be trying to manipulate God, and you may be trying to cast God in an image where he'll be happy with you and what you're doing. And the reality is, he's just being gracious, and the chaos is going to be erupting all around you. And then finally, I have a challenge for you. Be willing to live a life that's distinct from the world around you, and not distinct because you're arrogant and judgmental, distinct because you prioritize the worship of God, and because you love him, you love other people. Can you be distinct from the world around you and still love the people in the world around you? When God is at the center of your life and your value comes from him, and you are letting him shape your life instead of letting letting your desires shape your image of him, when he's at the center, you'll live differently. But that different won't be judgmental and repelling. It'll be delightful and attractive. And people will say, I like how you live. Is your life full of chaos? Examine why that may be. Ask yourself one more time, am I deceiving myself to think that God's on my side when really I'm just changing my theology and recreating God to be happy with whatever I choose to do? And are you willing to live distinct from the world and still love the people in the world?